This is an Island to Island production. I'm Ollie Walker and welcome to Ironcast, the show that brings you discussions with craftsmen, celebrities, denim heads, retailers, members of the internal and extended Ironheart family, and well, sometimes people we just plain like. In episode one, we're talking to Giles Padmore, owner and the man behind Ironheart International. We talk about how he discovered this once niche brand, how his relationship with Haraki San began, and of course, denim. This is an Island to Island production. You're listening to Ironcast. Enjoy. When I, when I listen to you on the, on the Dean Dalray podcast, you're a formidable interviewer because you don't waver. And it's something that it reminded me of the first time I ever spoke to you on the phone. And I, I remember being thoroughly intimidated by you. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, I think your representation precedes you in, in the best possible way because you're this kind of well, really knowledgeable, well-informed, erudite man who gives very clear answers and gives people what they're looking for when when they come to Ironheart. And I, I always, I actually, one of the things I really respect about you. So that's what I meant by your, your formidable, formidable nature. No, no, thank you, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Giles, I, I want you to start off by asking you, because we kind of know roughly where it, roughly where it began, but I'd like to know where it all began, your, your, your education, your youth, where you went to school, where you grew up? I grew up in the Midlands. Um, and I guess I got into the denim scene when I was about 14. And why I got into it specifically, I don't really know, other than reading New Musical Express and people selling old cowboy jeans for 50 pence each or something like that. I bought a lot. And then um, my uncle, who's about 10 years older than me, was the coolest person in the world. And he wore Levi's and he'd got albums by the Beatles with Lennon wearing super faded jeans. And I asked super innocent questions like why is he wearing faded jeans he can obviously afford new ones and my uncle explaining to me that maybe he quite liked them faded and um so I saved up and I saved up and I saved up and I eventually went into the center of Birmingham the Bullring shopping center and bought a pair of they weren't shrink to fit I bottled it and bought pre-shrunk I can't remember how much they were but I remember lying comprehensively to my mother about how much they'd cost me and from that point forward I've just been jeans a jeans person really straight through yeah I mean I I had a period when I wore polo shirts and chinos (laughs) (laughs) but I grew out of that (laughs) um I and I don't really know why you know I can't say I had a come to Jesus one day and thought, fuck, jeans are the way forward or jeans are me. It's just something that has always tickled my fancy and made me intrigued. And I suppose they were so so part of the culture as well at the time. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, when I started wearing them, you'd get, you weren't let into pubs and clubs if you were wearing jeans. You know, it was, no. 
I mean, it wasn't as anti-culture as the um, Hells Angels in the States, but it was still a bit naughty to wear a pair of jeans and try and get into a club or a pub. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I liked that as well. It was yeah, a bit edgy. A bit edgy, yeah, absolutely. So when you, I know you were doing, before this whole Japanese world came to you or, or you came to it, whichever way you want to look at it, you were in IT. Mm-hmm. And how many years did that span out? Oh. <laughs> I had I got to have been in it for 25 years. Wow. But only, probably only a couple of years actually working in the UK. Most of my time was out of the country. Really? Yeah. Um, firstly, in Holland and or the Netherlands and Belgium. And then all sorts of different countries around the world until I, the last 10 years of my life, my that career I spent selling IT into the former Soviet bloc. So I lived in Prague for a year. I spent four or five, I was on flights four or five, six times a week throughout the whole of the communist bloc selling stuff. Um, and it was a great life. Yeah. I mean, it, it really was a cowboy life then, <laughs> just after the wall had come down. There were no rules. Um, and I'm pretty good when there aren't <laughs> rules. Um, and I loved it, but I didn't see it. I didn't see myself doing it forever. So I tried all sorts of other things as a way of breaking out and giving my working life, life some longevity because I didn't think, the IT was going to do it forever. Right. So I tried a few things and then I found a way of working with denim that possibly could be a route out of that. And it was only a possible then, but a very tenuous possible, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a gamble. Um. I I don't see it as a gamble. Mm. I I I had a for the first few years all I needed to do from the denim and I learned a lot of lessons for the first few years maybe 3 or 4 all I needed my denim business to do because I was still consulting in the IT world all I needed the denim business to do was to pay bills mm. primarily Alex's education. Um then I lost my biggest consulting job um, on Valentine's Day in San Francisco. I took a I took a, an email from my biggest client saying, "We thought it would be too personal to tell you face to face, so we're sending an email. We don't need you any longer." No. And that was a holy fuck moment. No, um, because by then we'd bought this house that hadn't been lived in for 23 years, so we were heavily in the middle of refurbing that. Alex was still at school, and I really didn't know what to do. And I thought about the denim, I looked at the denim, and one day I said to Paul, I really, Paul was my wife, I said, I really think we can make this work. Wow. But I need your support, because... At the moment, it's just about paying for Alex, Alex's education, but it can't pay for anything else. So you need to fund everything else in our life. Can you do that? And she said, yeah. 
Um, she was running her own business at the time. So for two years, I didn't pay a single fucking bill other than Alex's education whilst I got this going. I sold every insurance policy I had, every life policy, everything um, to keep going. And then one day, more came in than went out. And Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Things have gone better and better and better. <laughs> I mean, how does Alex feel about that? I mean, he, he obviously knows at the time that it was but he I, was I, the. I don't. He probably doesn't know this, but when he listens to it, he will. <laughs> is that he was left a few thousand pounds by my grandmother in her will? I even borrowed that off for him. I was looking after it for him. I basically borrowed that off him without telling him at one point when I was really down and out, and. Uh, I paid him back eventually. But I didn't ask him. I just fucking had to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, I don't know what Alex thinks about it. You can ask him when you talk to him about it. Um, it's not... It's funny enough, it's not a conversation I've ever had with him. Wow. It's, I mean, it's, it's... It's incredibly prudent of you to have made those sacrifices and to have just kind of gone gung-ho in, in it. But you must have had a, a, an idea of this has weight, that there is so much potential in, in this world that I'm essentially bringing to the West. I, I think I've always looked at, looked at it like I only need 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of the world jeans market to be <laughs> successful. You know, there's a lot of people who wear jeans. I need the tiniest fraction of that to make a reasonable living. Wow. So, so where, where where did that transition begin? Was it was it was it a trip to Japan? Was it just a, was it just a kind of a what what made you go? There's some because there was the Levi's, and, and I'm aware that there was a lot of again. I, I say I'm aware. I'm I'm vaguely aware of the repros that were happening in the '90s of Levi's, and mm -hmm. they were trying to kind of mimic the the Biggie yeah. scene. Was this around the time of like a Visu and things like this? Were no, Visu Visu was well before I got involved. Right. Um, <clears throat> I had no idea that there was even a, th a thing which was Japanese denim or Japanese clothing. If anybody asked me 16 years, what's Japanese clothing? I'd have said kimono. <laughs> <clears throat> but from a, the age of about 25, I, I'd continue buying Levi Red Tab 501s. Uh, through most of my adult life, I had never, well, I threw a few pairs away, but in general, I just stuck them up into the attic. And I thought one day Alex is going to be the coolest dude at school when he turns up in a pair of trash big E's. <laughs> so I didn't even know what a big E that was then. Um, and when we moved to this house and I had to move all the jeans um, around, I thought, this is, this is stupid. You know, there's dozens of pairs that I've had. And I thought I might as well sell some of them see whether they're worth anything. So I did some research, found they were worth absolutely nothing. I think I managed to sell one pair to a guy in Norwich for 10 quid or something. I mean, it's, <laughs> it was pitiful. Um, but in the process of researching what they were worth, I, I stumbled across Japanese repro stuff. Because in those days when you Googled Levi's Red Tab or Big E, you'd get hits for some of the some of the Japanese brands. And um, 
that really intrigued me. So I, I just went further and further and further down that rabbit hole trying to discover what it was all about and came to the realization that there were some really, really great brands that weren't represented outside of Japan. So I fired off a few emails and Haraki, he say, yeah. Haraki, he say, yeah. So what, what was what was what was Haraki churning out at the time? What was the, like what were the initial core products? Um, six three four S, so our twenty one ounce selvage. Six three four, which is our twenty one ounce non selvage. The same non selvage, but in black. Mm-hmm. So that's oh, and a boot cut. So four five pairs of jeans, two boot cuts, three straight cuts, two jackets. That was it. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, the 526, I've got one in the original downstairs, the first ever shipment, 526. Um, and 527, the rider's jacket, which we did in blue and black at the time. The rider's jacket, I've got this one. This is with the, the gussets. One. And the red. Yeah. Yeah. That I've got, that's one of my favourite jackets. Like, it's like my summer riding jacket. It, it's a super favourite with a lot of people, yeah. It's amazing. So there, there were those, that was it then. So my first delivery consisted of a size run in everything he made. Oh, my God. And it was probably three boxes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and where was he at in his life? Like, where was he? Was this just his... Was this his side gig? Was this his... It passion? was one of his gigs. One of his gigs. He's, he's really highly respected in, in the Amakaji market in Japan. Amakaji being American vintage a very loose translation. Mm. Um, he was highly, highly respected. He'd worked for Edwin, and I think it was 6,000 cuts he designed for Edwin. He'd, he'd, he'd got a reasonable amount of experience doing <laughs> jeans. Um, and he'd set up on his own to do consultancy. So he was consulting all sorts of people about how to set factories up, how to sew. Um, and he still does to a certain extent, but more as a sort of friendly advice now rather than paid advice because he is so highly respected. Um, and he decided to set up a brand called Ironheart, which I think is a brilliant name. Yeah. And yeah. It never ceases to amaze me how a Japanese person could come up with a name that resonates so well in the West. Yeah. Um, and he set up Ironheart. And when I first met him, Ironheart was taking up probably 30% of his time. He was doing all sorts of other stuff for other people. And a bit like me, over time it mutated into more and more of his given work time. Wow. So... The initial orders with the jeans, the jacket, you, you mm-hmm. bought up everything. What was the time span of that until things started? You were like, okay, there's a, people are really eating this up. Where, how do we grow? Like, what, what was that next stage for you? When did you guys go into sort of second gear, as it were? I suspect second gear started when Keir from Selfridge got in touch with me and said that he was opening up a shop called Selfridge in San Francisco and he would like to buy Ironheart. And the concept of selling to retailers was n- not one that I had entertained. It was not part of the game plan. And it floored me that somebody <laughs> would get in touch with me. Anyway, Keir asked for some 
samples which I sent and I wish I had the original email but his reply was something these are fucking awesome <laughs> I need them um, so I shipped a bunch of shit to him um, and he Kia and Self Edge were instrumental in helping the brand become what it is because he gave it bricks and mortar presence. Uh, he was probably still is, though I never go on to any of the other forums any longer. He was a big voice on Superfuture and stuff like that. So he he helped a lot. Wow. And I, I've never really seen the store, obviously never seen it in person, but it, I imagine it gave these brands context you know the the brick walls and the and the, and the iron was it the, the steel or the it's wrought iron he wrought used iron, a lot of yeah. wrought iron a lot of beautiful furniture lovely rugs yeah um he curates everything so every store is instantly identifiable as a self-edge not just from the look but from the smell he has the same smell being pumped out into each store he has the same soundtracks um you know it's it's brilliant yeah 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 i mean you could go in blindfolded and you would know i know yeah it's very high-minded of him to have that all thought through you know this is what i want to curate this is what i want to cultivate but it but i think it's a perfect context for the brand because they just go so well together and and it's a it's a very elegant design, and, and I just think it fits beautifully with the brand. But, but I, what I'm curious now is, is there was a conversation. That this, this, this relationship wasn't just, I'm going to buy your designs. You started to have an involvement now with the designs and with the feedback, because you were getting feedback from customers now. People were contacting you um, and giving you their thoughts. I would think the first time I had the audacity to suggest to Hierarchy that we did something that hadn't come exclusively from his mind. And looking back on it now and knowing Hierarchy, it was really fucking audacious of me. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> he had the grace to pretend to be excited. Um <laughs> And he made me a Type 2, and I can't even remember the cut, but we did some jeans as well, which were released at the same time. And that was my first little dabble into trying to influence what we bought to the West. Um, VMC picked up a lot of those jeans and a lot of those jackets, so that really, and they've been around 35 years now. Really? Their 25th anniversary was 2011. VMC Zurich. Yeah. Um, so probably the oldest of anybody we shipped to. Maybe, there's maybe one or two a little bit older. But in, in this space, they've been around for a long, long time. Mm. Um, and they they bought a lot of the jackets and a lot of the jeans and really loved them. And I thought, hey, you know, we're doing, you know, even I'm doing something right. Um so that was another, if you like, validation yeah. that there was there was scope here. There was stuff that we could do together that would not necessarily sell in Japan, but would sell outside of Japan. Well, well this brings me on then. The question that, that still to this day, and I have touched on this with you in the past and we have spoken, the thing that boggles my mind is how does this relationship 
work? How does it run? How does it function? <laughs> because they're two worlds. I mean, the thing that I'm aware of is that I think that it was 18-something Japanese, J- J- Japan opened its doors up. Uh, reluctantly, <laughs> because there was a war boat lob- threatening to blow the shit out of them if they didn't. <laughs> so, so this culturally, I mean, they're so different, so alien to mm-hmm. us and us to them. The thing I'm mainly curious about, how does this, how does this relationship it run as smoothly as it does? <sighs> it's a question I ask myself all the time because... <laughs> I learn more and more and more about the Japanese and the Japanese culture and the Japanese psyche every day. And the more I learn, the more I look back on how I approach my relationship with them and think, Jesus, it, you know, how did you get away with that? You know, why why weren't you thrown out? Why weren't you laughed out? You know, Um so I think all credit to Hiraki, he, he's very open-minded. Um, but even saying that, he's got a, a core of Japanese-ness going through himself. So he's open-minded, but he's still qu- quite constrained by how you do things in Japan and mm. even to how you talk and stuff so um i didn't really understand any of that when i first started working with him and i think hopefully his open minders mindedness was you know this is a rude little shit <laughs> but i quite like him i'll put up with it because i think he must he probably still puts up with me you know i think he had to put up with me for a long time and some of the stuff i did and some of the stuff i asked him to do I find excruciatingly embarrassing looking back on it now. Really? Can you give an example? <sighs> Just, <laughs> I, I, will you do these jeans? And they were super slim or something. Yeah. He said, no, I'm, I'm not interested. And I said, we could sell a lot of them. I don't care. I'm not interested. You know, basically, why did you have the temerity to even assume that that was in my wheelhouse? It's just not me. Um, many, many instances of that, um, going to him with a finished design of something, this is what I want. He hates if he can't put some of his soul into it. Um, he's just not interested. He, he's done it for me, the 1955, which is quite a good seller. I basically took a pair of 1955 biggies to him and say copy them wow um and he hates them because there is zero shiniki hirachi soul in that gene so now i say i'm i really think this would sell something like this what do you think and if he says yeah maybe then i said well how about this this and this and over to you I did it this week. I really... I, 10 or 11 years ago, I asked him to do a denim pullover shirt, so a half-buttoned shirt mm-hmm. that I'd seen in a picture of in one of Rintanaka's books. They said, no, nah, not interested. It'll be very expensive, 
which I think basically meant I don't want to do it. And if I say it's really expensive, that'll probably put you off. <laughs> because I went away from that meeting, but how the fuck can it be very expensive? It's just a shirt, you know. It's got less buttons on than a normal shirt. Six or so years ago, I went back to him and said, I really want to do it. And effectively, I got the same answer. I wrote to him two days ago and said, look, I really, really think there's a market for a denim pullover shirt. You've told me no twice. I'm going to ask once more. And if you say no, I'll never mention it again, Giles. And he came back and said, good idea. Oh. And uh, I said, I wanted to say, can I tell you exactly what I want? But I knew that would kill it. So I went back and said, so how do we move this forward? Hoping he would say, well, have you got some ideas? He came back and said, I will come up with a design and fabric. That's it. So... I'm, I'm, I'm not allowed to have any input, which mm -hmm. is fine. You know, if, if that's the way he wants to run it, you know, yeah. you know, it's his brand. Yeah. He runs it how he wants. And I'm just pleased that we are going to move somewhere forward with that. Whether it turns out anything like I've got in my head, mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll find out in four or five weeks. Are you, are you going to be able to put any um, preliminary drawings up? Or is anyone on the forum potentially going to be able to? We, I put a, I put the concept. But there's a thread on the forum called uh, "Stuff We're Working On" or "Products We're Working On," and um, I got a lot of suggestions from the forum members, and I, I basically had to shut them down last night. I said, "You can come up with as many suggestions as you want, but they ain't going anywhere." Haraki doesn't read this, and he's made it clear to me. He wants to design it. And then one of the other members came back and said, well, if this sells well, perhaps we could tweak the design for a future iteration. And I said, actually, that's probably the way it works. You know, we'll do this one. If it sells well, I then have the ability to go back to Iraq and say, yeah, that sold really well. Now can we try this? So I can mutate something that he's come up with, mm -hmm. but I can't come up with the idea and tell him to do it. Well, I can, but it doesn't work so well. Well, I mean, it must be odd for him because if I'm... I mean, I was attracted to the brand because I'm a biker and that was what brought me to it. I was, I was, I was in London. I, I went by Rivet and Hyde in um, uh, Windmill Street and, uh, and they had a beautiful motorbike up the front and I just thought, oh, that's, that's nice. And, and I spoke to Danny and I said, I, I, ride, I ride a bike. What would you recommend? And he said, oh, well, I... I I think the uh, the twenty one ounce Ironheart mm -hmm. would be good for you, and I could see the the badge on the back with the bike, and, and I just started digging digging in, and, and I found Haraki, and I just thought, okay, well, this is my brand. This is like he's he's not putting it out there as oh, this is protective clothing, because generally protective clothing they have to go through all these different whatever it is regulations mm -hmm. tests to be, but it's just this is clothes that are suitable for a bike. They're not necessarily going to protect you, but they're you're going to. Skid down the tarmac a little bit further before you start taking flesh off. <laughs> well, case in point, have you seen my 64s? I had a, had a very low speed um, crash about four months ago on them, and I've got some um, some marks on them, but they, they've not, none of, they're not ripped. There's a couple of marks. Yeah, but I'm, you're right. It's not protective clothing. But it's suitable. Like, before I even knew about Ironheart, I was wearing quite a lot of Mr. Freedom. I just quite enjoyed the, I thought it was quite bonkers. Mm -hmm. But whenever I got on a motorbike, something about it, I didn't feel fortified, but something about Ironheart, you just feel like it's, it's practical, it's stylish, it's timeless. 
And that was the thing I found the most attractive about it is that it's almost it's it's functional as well as cool and stylish and, and brilliantly made. And that leads me on to the next question, which is have has Haraki or yourself, have you had to change any of the designs or any of the any of the products for the Western market? Because what proportionally, where are you selling now? Like where, where are your biggest markets at the moment? Um, outside of Japan is now bigger than uh, domestic Japan. Mm. Um, probably quite a bit bigger and probably increasing by a percentage point every week at the moment. Um, the Amakaji market is suffering a lot in Japan uh, corona hasn't helped. People are moving away from proper, in inverted commas, clothing like we make and to fast fashion. It's it's a shit show for all of the brands in our space in Japan. So demand is going down. <clears throat> in the West, it's going up. Um, I, I wouldn't even like to hazard a guess how much bigger than 50% we represent, but I'm pretty sure it's it's significantly over 50% now. Um, so I'll try and... Uh, there's a million answers to this question. So to, to answer part of the question, America is by far our biggest market. And I'm talking direct sales now. Really? Yeah. Uh, it's well over 50% of our direct sales. Uh, it's extraordinary. Canada included? Canada's not big, really. A lot of people, but a lot of... I mean, a, a big country, but just not a lot of people. Um, we have some retailers there who do really well. Um, I would think we probably sell five or ten items a week into Canada, that, and that's not really a lot. Mm. Um, but America is enormous. Mm. Um, and then Germany... Or maybe UK before Germany, but those two. Europe's taken a massive hit since the first of January, or our EU business has taken a massive hit since Brexit. But that's another story that I can rant on for ages about. So probably a whole episode we could do on that. <laughs> um, any people in the EU who are listening to it? We are selling to you again. So. Um, <clears throat> But how we've had to adapt, um, the biggest waist size we used to do was 40, and we we now do up to 44. That's specifically because of us. The biggest jacket size we used to do was XL. We now go up to quad, I think. Quad? Yeah, quad XL. For the big boys. Um, or bigger. Bigger boys. I mean, there's, there's bigger boys out there who wish we went bigger, but... <laughs> Um, so we've, we've expanded the, or taken our sizing bigger. Uh, we've made the inseam on just about everything longer because it didn't used to be long enough for a lot of our customers. So for a period, we used to have two types. We used to have two genes, like the Japanese version and the Western version, which was really annoying when I would sell out of the Western version. I couldn't restock, although he'd got dozens of the Japanese versions. So we had a chat, and now everything's made in one length. Because he has to hem them anyway, so 
most of the time. Mm. So they're all one length now worldwide. So I think that's what we've done to sizing mm. to make it a bit more accessible. Mm. But then we've launched uh, just bazillions of things that aren't sold in Japan, that some of which would sell, but Haraki doesn't want to be closely associated with it. Um, or some that just won't sell. Um, so I would think over 50% of what we sell in the West is not available in Japan. Wow, wow. And sometimes Haraki picks up something that <clears throat> has been inspired by the West, like the, uh, the 666 and the 555. He, <clears throat> he didn't sell those for a long time. And then I said, you can sell them if you want. And he said, well, they're yours. I, wow. I don't feel I can. <laughs> of course you can. You made them, you know. So now he does the 666. And the 555 in Japan for the domestic market. So the Devil's Fit, the 666, that's you, that's you? That was the first real gene I asked him to make. Really? After the... 634? No, after the one that I did in 14 ounce yes. a long time ago, which was, we actually, because it was 14 ounce, we then called it Triple Work. So, and I had a notion of becoming a, um, a shop that sold lots of different brands at the time. Mm. So I, I thought I'd call the shop Hidden Ribbit, not ripping the idea of self-edge off self-edge <laughs> at all. But So I'd set up a concept store called Hidden Ribbit. So th those genes were called the TWHR, so Triple Works X Hidden Ribbit mm. 01 or something. They were 14 ounce. They were my first dabble. My first real dabble was the 666. And I said to Haraki, we need a slimmer gene than 634. And I'd really like a raw denim with a bit more character than the 21 ounce. And he delivered on both. Wow. And that was the first 666 um, in the original 18 ounce, which we don't make any longer for various reasons. Um, so that was the first real gene that I asked him to do. So me being a sentimental fool, I... I previous prior to this i i asked if you could bring something with you that has a sort of story attached to it has mm -hmm. fond memories and i believe you've brought a pair of 666s there now i'd love it if you could tell everyone that's listening about these genes and what's kind of connected to them um, so the denim has a lot of texture to it it's it's very slubby well compared to a normal iron heart Denim, it's very slubby. Um, it's a, it's an uh, heavier than a twenty-one. No, it's eighteen. Oh, it's eighteen. This is eighteen. Ah, eighteen right. ounce raw. Yeah. Um, Haraki really doesn't like raw, so it started off quite raw, <laughs> um, and then he started sanfrizing it. But sanfrization is not like on or off. There are degrees of sanfrization. Right. So he lightly sanfrizes, so it still behaves pretty much like raw, mm -hmm. but he takes out some of the extreme unpredictability of a pure denim. So they ended up being a little bit sanfrized. I, I'm not even sure if we called them raw to the end, but they behaved quite like raw. Slubby, slim. 
I never thought I could wear a slim jean, but I love these. They're virtually the only cut I, I wear now, though I'm not wearing them today for various reasons. Um, we'll get a photo of those and put them up on the, uh, on the forum. Yeah, they're not, they're not heavily worn. I, I typically wear a pair of jeans until something else comes along that I want to try, mm. usually denim-wise. There's a bit of failure on some of the stitching. Um, but they were, they were the first jean and the first denim that I was heavily influential in. So those, those hold a place in my heart. Oh. I call them a grown-up slim because I can wear them. <laughs> <laughs> and it does, it does cast an awful silhouette when everything is so tapered right down to the ankle. I, I'm not a big fan of that look myself. I think it's been kind of ruined a bit by various other companies. Well, you know, doing the stretch. Own, you know, I don't... <laughs> I'm I'm pretty non-judgmental about how people want to look. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Yeah, it's a you good know, way to they, be. If they want to wear stuff that I wouldn't be seen dead in, that, you know, it's not my. I, I I really just don't see it as my point to yeah to pick them out on it. I yeah. mean, what right have I got to say <laughs> you look shit? He probably thinks exactly the same about me. You know, what's right or wrong? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's a very very good point. I think I think it's I, I'm biased because I I think there's something to be said for buying something, spending a bit more money and just having less. Spend a bit more, have a bit less, make it last longer, create some memories, create some stories. And I'm a sucker for that. And I, I don't know if it's, they say that men are interested in things and, and women are interested in people. They say that's generally why you find more men in IT and more women, you know, are doing more um, jobs where generally it's a massive mm -hmm. generalization where they'll be interacting with people. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why, and actually this is probably my next question. I'd like to ask you about the forum why the forum is such an enlightening place for denim heads and for people who love the brand. I mean, is it, is it just about the fades or, or is it, is it about the kind of stories, the people, is it the tribe? I think, yeah, tribe is probably a word I would try and avoid. Cult <laughs> is a word I would try and avoid. Um, but the forum in very general terms is a place where like-minded people can spend some time. So, you know, if we're going to generalizations, in general, people who like good denim, good clothing, like good coffee, like good knives, like good music, like good music systems, like good leather goods, you know, there's something that sort of, I, I don't know what it is, but the the sort of people who are quite vocal on the forum have those sort of interests and they feel comfortable. It's like walking into a comfortable pub and just chatting mm. about stuff that everybody likes. Yeah. And I've had a lot of criticism from people about the place being too nice and not enough criticism about people's cuts. So, I, you know, I don't give a fuck, you know. <laughs> I like it to be a nice place. And if you don't like nice places, then don't come. Yeah. Um, it's my party. It's my rules. And I like people to like being there and to feel comfortable. And the number of new members that we've picked up over the pandemic, I think it's a nice little place for people to go and while away some time mm. when they're not can't be doing what they would normally be doing. Um, it's my little baby and I like it. 
and I think a lot of people like it. I had a scan. I had a scan. I, ju- I just actually, I've, I've never been on it, but I, I just joined yesterday. I think it was the day before. And it's interesting to see it. And people really, they get fired up in a good way. You know, they love to talk about it. They love to find out what's coming from, you know, what, what, what's on the agenda, what's coming up, you know, even the events that are, that are happening. You know, they, they really like being a part of it all because it's something they care about, isn't it, this, this brand? You know? Yeah. And um, I'm a great believer in relationship sell and I I like my customers to have some sort of relationship with what they buy and the brand and me and my team it it makes I mean in in simplistic terms it makes it easier for them to part with their money but that's not (laughs) you know that's not the that's not the be all and end all it's I just like Having connections with people. Um, mm. I've made some of the best friends of my life through the forum. Really? And I bet there's a lot of forum members who've made some really great friends through the forum. Mm. And I like that and I'm pleased about that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I, mean, I mean, I had a chance to meet some of them. at the. We had an event, God, I, I almost can't remember what the world was like before all this, but we had an event, down. what was the brewery? Nearby, um, uh, fallen acorn. Yeah. came on your bike. Came it on my was, bike. I think it was our ten-year anniversary. Ten-year anniversary. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was a whole weekend. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it. Well, it actually started on the Wednesday, <laughs> and finished the following Wednesday for me and Paula because we had a couple fly in from Tai Taiwan. Yeah, who stayed with us for a week, and then other people just started turning up on Thursday and. Friday and Saturday, and then some were left on Monday, some left on Tuesday. It was a it was a week of jollity. Just, just come by. <laughs> it was lovely, and, and you did a you did like an Ironheart beer, I think. Was that yep. something that Alex did, or was that you guys did it together? Um, I can't remember. We were probably shooting the breeze <laughs> over a beer, and um, there's a beer they do which is called Double Tide because the Solent which is the stretch of water mm. close to here, has a, is one of the few places in the world that has a double tide. As, it, as the tide comes round the island one end mm. and round the island the other end, mm. um, it bounces off each other. And so it's, it's called double tide. So anyway, yeah. the beer was called double tide. And uh, we were chatting with the brewer and said we wanted to do something. He said, let's do a dry hopped one. So it's double tide, mm. which is a really lovely lager, but we dry hopped it. Yeah, yeah. And... He's still got a lot of our labels there, so let's go again. We should make some more. Yeah, I think we should because it was really, really good. So I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Um, what were the other things you brought? Because I am intrigued with the man of the, the, the abundance of um, items you might have come across well, in your the other time. thing is a UHF. Um, now this is the new. This is the new one. So my okay. um, my other thing is basically any UHF we've done in the last ten years. Um, the one I have here is a buffalo check. Uh, it's indigo dyed, which is the first time we've indigo dyed a buffalo check. Um, this one is a western, but we'll do it in a work. Mm-hmm. I'm wearing it. It's a full winter release, but I'm wearing it now so we can see how it fades. But the reason I chose UHF was I think UHF now is one of the things that we're really famous for. We've 
famous maybe, too strong a word, but well known for. One is 21 ounce denim. The other's probably the 634 cut. I think our N1 jackets fall into that category and UHFs fall into that category. And if you have a look at the search terms used to find Ironheart, UHF is the third most Googled term no. for us. 12 ounces. It's the same weight as a pair of Levi's denim. So it's ridiculously <laughs> heavy for a flannel. Um, it's quite heavily brushed on the inside, not very brushed on the outside. Super windproof. I can ski in a UHF in moderate weather and be fine. Um, we did a couple of iterations a long time ago. I can't even remember the model numbers. I think one of them might have been IHSH 72, but that's a guess. There will be some boys out there who could correct me <laughs> without looking it up. Um, and then Haraki stopped making them. And I, I hadn't really noticed that he'd stopped making them. I have no idea why not. And then a customer said, why aren't you doing, probably about four years, three or four years later, a customer said, to me through the forum why aren't you doing UHFs any longer I thought, hm, good question <laughs> I don't know so I, I dropped hierarchy and said we need to re-release UHFs and his answer was the man who wove the UHF fabric has left the factory <gasps> and that was it and so this 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 actually is a very Japanese response right the guy's left so end of no so i wrote back to him and said any chance you could find where he is now yeah oh good idea <laughs> so he went away and a couple of weeks later he said i found him and he can do it i said right then let's do uhfs and they are we've been presenting for winter 21 over the last four or five working days to our retailers happen to do it on Zoom. Normally we'd go to New York and Berlin to do it in these weird times we're having to do it on Zoom. So we've been doing those over the last five years. Every single retailer we have spoken to says we can't get enough UHFs. We sell out of them. We order more and more and more and more and they fly off the shelves. Um, we have a lovely little retailer in Geneva called Feinfract mm -hmm. who I don't think they'd be too upset if I said their website is not the most brilliant website in the world, they sold more UHFs to America than they sold to Switzerland because people in America couldn't find them anywhere else because they'd sold out and were prepared to trawl the internet yeah. till, the, till they found them. Pay the duty as well. Yep, and the <laughs> shipping probably. Um, so they now have a life of their... They really have wow. a life of their own. And... Um, I'd like to think a little bit of that is me. So yeah. they are, they hold a, a very strong attachment to me. And Hierarchy gets more and more, I don't know how many spliffs he goes into the corner and smokes when he comes up with the designs, but the designs <laughs> are getting more out there. And funnily enough, the more out there they get, the fastest selling one for us last fall, winter, was a crazy check and the crazy is pretty crazy. I think we've got a hundred work shirts in and a hundred um, the westerns. We sold, 
I think all but about ten of them in twenty four hours. So just it was just seriously, yeah. Um, Fucking hell! I know. <laughs> I think we've taken in the last twelve months. We've probably taken eight, nine, maybe even a thousand UHFs. I think we've got seventeen left in the shop. <laughs> I might get this wrong. I'm sure I've seen a photo of Elon Musk wearing. It might not have been UHF, but it might have been like a CPO or something. But I've got yeah, Elon Musk even wearing one yeah, in a car somewhere. I don't think I've seen him in in a UHF. I might be wrong. I've seen him in some of our denims. I'm pretty sure he wears. He's got a a one seven seven, which is our eighteen ounce denim CPO. Ah, uh, maybe it was that. Maybe it was that. I'm pretty sure he has one of those. I can't remember if he's got the overdyed one or not. Because a CPO is a good shout as well, isn't it? That's a head. I mean, the navy. I've got the navy blue one. Is it the moleskin? I mean, that's yeah, like we did a moleskin. You basically that's a, basically a jacket, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in fact, the denim, the one seven sevens and the one seven eights, um, which superseded some earlier ones, the IHD one. You can tell it was my my idea because it hasn't got a proper model number it should be ihsh something but i called it the ihd for denim mm-hmm. that was originally we did we did a melton wall cpo ihw01 and then re-released it a couple of years later ihw04 about 16 inch 16 ounce melton wall and a customer said that'd be great in denim so i went to her and said that'd be great in denim and he said yeah <laughs> good idea and those those now are well up there as one of our biggest sellers really denim the, the 18 ounce it's, it's had a number of guys it's 14 ounce so we run out of 14 ounce that you know and then anyway the current guys is 18 ounce the 18 ounce that the original um 666 were made out of but we've run out of that so the new run will be the new 18 ounce vintage mm-hmm. um in indigo and overdyed but that's a great seller yeah um we haven't done oh yeah we have done a cpo out of uhf in the past you have yeah I've seen um, plain black plain a plain black one and a plain maroon oh wow they didn't sell very well funnily enough well that's that's going to feature in full winter maroon that color again the hoodies um, yeah, that's a would very... Would you call that maroon or would you call I'd, that I'd a call burgundy? It, I'd call it washed out burgundy. Would it you? looks, it looks very washed out. We are doing a deep red. It's a bit more scarlet than maroon. A 13 ounce um, plain weave flannel that's very lightly combed, not brushed. It feels amazing. It's heavier than a UHF. Uh, we're doing it in two colours. We're doing it in the burgundy ready colour and a black, and that'll be a CPO. Okay. Um, it'll be expensive. It's heavier than the, uh, the UHF. It's a really, really rare, not rare, hard to find fabric that Haraki has found. Um, so I'm intrigued as to how that will do. Okay. Brilliant. I mean, like I said, I mean, the shirts are, they're, they are gorgeous. And the fact that you've got the work and the Western, if you prefer something a bit more, you know, hugging the body and the work's a bit more relaxed, I, I yeah. think it's the perfect two options, really. The Westerns probably sell two to one over the work. Do they, really? Yeah. 
Uh, very few retail estate work. Really? Um, I have no idea why. Um, but there are some people who just will not buy a Western because mm. it's too flashy or it's too fitted. So the work is good for them. Certainly a look. It's certainly a look, isn't it? Well, I've got to ask you, what's the third one? Because I, I need to... I, I, okay. Um, <laughs> XHS, which is... Uh, it's a denim. <laughs> it's a real life, I'm guys. getting messages from somebody. Sorry, guys. This is real life. Um, <laughs> XHS stands for Extra Heavy Salvage. Yeah. Um, it's 25 ounce, which is ridiculously heavy. Um, it was... The concept was dreamt up by me and Roger Hatt, who's the owner of VMC, over a beer in 2010 outside a hotel in Shibuya, Tokyo. And he said, next year is my 25th, it's the 25th anniversary of VMC. I'd like to do something special. Oh, that's nice. So the beer kicked in and I said, how about a 25 ounce denim? He said, oh, great. We went. We were going up to see Hiraki in Hachiochi the following day, so we did the normal stuff. And then I said, I've had an idea, which now when I say I have had an idea, he sticks both his fingers in his ears and shuts his eyes. Um, I said, I've had an idea. He said, what is that? I said, 25 ounce denim. And... I think his natural inclination would have been to say no, but Roger was there, so he couldn't be that rude to me. <laughs> and I think the story intrigued him, 25 ounce denim for 25 years, so he said yeah. And he made it, and 10 years on, we can't keep the stuff on the shelves. We do it in various different types now, uh, original indigo, white if you like white weft we do indigo black we do black black um and we really just can't make enough of it and again that wouldn't have happened if i wasn't having a beer with roger i mean it's so much about the relationships with the retailers as well isn't it it's one of the things that keeps the i feel like keeps the brand invigorated keeps it keeps it exciting it's the way they I mean, is it interesting for you to see what products each retailer buys? Can you anticipate what each place is going to go for when yeah. they come by? Really? Yeah, I, not, <laughs> not, not perfectly. Right. But a really great example was yesterday. Um, I would think the fall-winter collection comprises, say, 25 pieces. Mm -hmm. I mean, not counting colour variations because there's 18 variations, I think. 18 variations of sweats. Uh, and the sweat, just very briefly, we've had a problem with sweats for years. They haven't been long enough, so you've had, because they've been very Japanese-centric. Um, and we've been asking Hiraki for years to make them longer, and it always fell into the too-difficult pile. But for some reason, he's decided that it's got to the top of the too-difficult pile, and it's done it. So, for instance, in a sweatshirt, I used to have to wear an XL to get anything like the length, but it was still too short, but I still wanted to wear one. So I'd wear an XL. It flopped around my waist because it wasn't tight. It was too short and it was too big in the chest. 
not a good look, really. Now, uh, an L fits me perfectly in the chest. The arms are exactly the right length, and it's about two inches longer in the body, so absolutely perfect cut. Um, so I think those will do very well. Anyway, so there's about 25 different broad offerings for fall winter. We were showing them to Jason from Division Road, and he says, Alex, who was doing the presentations, and I was just hanging around in the background making a nuisance of myself, <laughs> um, had asked Jason if he wanted to see the whole collection, because, again, we just to reiterate, we did it on Zoom. He said, no, I just want to see these five items that I've selected from the retailer portal. We have a website that we built for the retailers that they can order stuff from. And he sent those through to Alex. And we heavily talked about those five items. And he said, is there anything else I should consider that I haven't? And Alex said, no, you've picked out exactly what I would have picked out for you. So, <laughs> so we, we get it right occasionally. Yeah. Jason, um, Danny, Danny's pretty predictable in what he will buy. Um, Kia, Selfage. Fairly predictable, you know. That some some of our retailers are super predictable. Some are unpredictable because they'll they'll just try different shifts. Try some of our bigger, more established ones just know what will work. Yeah, they know their customer demographic, and don't want to. I mean, um, Kia doesn't. We asked him if he wanted to see the collection on Zoom. He said, "I don't need to. I've got the pictures. I've got the portal." You know, he knows our stuff well enough mm -hmm. not to inverted commas waste his time or our time talking about it wow because we wouldn't make any difference to what he'd decided wow i mean I, I, and he knows his customer. how many shops has he got now uh he has four in the states and one in mexico okay four in the states, one in mexico. i mean it's probably a bit of a sore subject really stores talking about uh, stores right now but yeah. his online business is strong i presume i think any Ironheart retailer and by extension almost any retailer who had a good or has a good online presence has probably fared reasonably well over the last 12 months. I mean you guys have seen an increase throughout this? We've seen an increase. Um, most of the bricks and mortar stores who I've asked the specific question of over the last week have been slightly up or on about par with 2019 which all of us would take as a win <laughs> in march last year the world had come to an end really i was talking to paula about you know how we were going to get rid of all the stock we'd got we didn't oh have a business God. it's really what i felt like <laughs> And I wasn't, I don't think I was being overdramatic at the time. Obviously, in <laughs> retrospect, I was being super overdramatic. But at the time, it was like all of our stores are shutting worldwide. We don't know where the hierarchy will be able to continue to produce stuff mm. because the factories might have to close. Mm. Um, our retailers are going to take months to pay us because they're not getting, getting any money yeah. in for stuff that they've already taken delivery of. I'm, I'm not bitching. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. We deliver stuff and at some time, hopefully 30 days, but maybe 60 or 90 days later, they pay us. That's the way it works. If they've got no money coming in, mm. what do they do? Um, sell a house, sell a car, sell a wife on the corner. You know, <laughs> it, it's, 
it, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we didn't know whether our customers were going to have jobs. So um, it was fairly bleak for a couple of weeks. And, and I think it was pretty bleak for everybody I've yeah. spoken to in this business. And then it's like the world sort of shook their collective head and thought, we've got to get on with life. And they got on with life and our sales picked up again. Yeah. And um, we, we did pretty well. I mean, casting aside the emotional shit and the human tragedy, business has been pretty good for us. Mm. Um, so I'm not asking for another pandemic to come down the pipe, but uh, it, it... I was chatting to a friend the other day, and if I, I said, if I had told you in March where we would be in October, you'd have had me sectioned. Um, because it's just been so much better than anybody could have predicted. Wow. And we've stolen business from bricks and mortar stores. And <laughs> sorry, retailers out there who I've stolen business from, I didn't do it on purpose. Um a lot of those customers will go back to the bricks and mortar stores because there's a lot of people out there who have a predilection to trying shit on, <laughs> seeing whether it fits, um, and or supporting their local yeah. businesses. And I would be more than delighted if we lost all of that business to our bricks and mortar stores mm. when they open up again because we can't survive without them. Yeah. Yeah. They fuel... Well, obviously, they sell our stuff, but they also fuel demand in places that we couldn't hope to reach. And we, and we can only hope that, that they will recover and that things will, you know, get easier and people will start spending their money in store again so they can recover if, if they have suffered any losses so far. Yeah, I would imagine that if we ask any of our retailers who've got bricks and mortar and online presence is that their bricks and mortar suffered Badly, mm. but their online sales more than made up for that okay. loss in business. Yeah. But I mean, if you look at Kier, it's got four or five properties that haven't been open for a shops that haven't been open for a long time. Yeah. It costs a shitload <laughs> just to keep them there doing nothing. God, it's just bonkers, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's awful. So I've got, to, I've got to ask you my final question, if that's all right, Giles, because I know I'm, we're, we're pushing it with, you're such a busy man. But um, I, I've got to ask you now, the future of Ironheart. Now, we talk about people like uh, the factories. Um, okay, he doesn't do that anymore. We've got to find him and whatever else. And presumably you're not going to want to be doing this for another <laughs> however many years. Where do you see things going? Obviously, we have Alex in the mix who we're going to talk to later. But where do you where do you see everything going with this particular brand over the next sort of ten years? Um, well, Alex Alex runs the joint really now, um, and me and Paula laughingly talk about we work for him. <laughs> um, you know, not to put a too fine a point on it, Paula and I are getting on. We're in our 60s. Harak is in his 60s. He's a little bit older than me. Um, 
just a backup, maybe half an hour. One of the reasons Hiraki and I have managed to bumble along together so well is that we're almost exactly the same age. And from a Japanese perspective, that takes all manner of complications out of the relationship. Really? He doesn't have to be deferential to me, and I don't have to be deferential to him. Um, Alex may be a million times better than me at doing this, but he couldn't have done what I did with Hiraki because there's a 35-year age difference, and Hiraki would not have been able to deal with that. So age really equates to, is, is, is almost a kind of a hierarchy. Yeah. And in fact, um, I think the, the, I'm referred to by everybody over there as Giles San. Um, <laughs> when Hiraki first started talking about Alex, it was Alex Kun, which is the baby. It's not quite that rude, but <laughs> Kun doesn't evoke the same amount of respect as San. And there are levels higher than San. Um, so I went to... Oh, yeah. So um, Alex is the future of this business. By this business, I mean the business outside of Japan. Um, he's got a lot more vigor. There's stuff that I've known for the last three or four years I should do, but just couldn't be asked to do it. Um, and I don't like that in me. But I have somebody who, who will do that now. So that's great. Um, Can I just interject? When you were saying that those things that you don't have in you, are you referring to social? Socials? Because they're a drain and they're, they take up so much energy and attention were we you referring yeah social like social is a necessary evil as far as i'm concerned yeah. i know it needs to be done but i i like i like things that have a measurable return and you can't measure the return from any of social shit you, I, I i know that if we didn't do social we wouldn't sell so much but I don't know if it's one pair of jeans a week or a hundred pairs a month or whatever. I've got no idea. And I'm very metric driven and not understanding those metrics is something that not perturbs me, but basically means that I don't concentrate on it as much as I should. Anyway, Alex and his team who are all the same age or younger than him are much more into all that shit than I am. So they're doing a good job on that. Um, we've set up a retailer portal, which I alluded to earlier, which is basically an online shop for our retailers to buy from. Highly complex, cost an absolute fortune. <laughs> um, and Paula and I dreamt the idea up sitting over there one Christmas, I think, and we kicked it off and... It just took forever to get done and it wasn't being done right by the people we were talking about earlier and I lost complete and utter interest in it and I think we'd spent 50 grand on it and we hadn't fucking gone live hell. and I fucking hated it so much <laughs> that I just, you know, I was prepared to say, let's just write that off. I, I, Alex came and said, no, we got to, we, you know, there is something here. Let me polish this turd. <laughs> <laughs> and he did, and he worked 
tirelessly to do it. And that has really transformed our business approach and relationship with our retailers. Because now they can go into there and pick stuff off and we ship it to them. We have everything sitting in Gosport now. Very little of it sits in um, Japan for any length of time. So if somebody sells a belt in Hamburg or something, they can order one just like that from us. We won't ship it to them without... They need to order a minimum of 10, but it gives them that ability. Um, We can take... I think a month ago we took a run of 186.34S in, put them on the portal. We were... Two days later, we got none left, (laughs) which was a bit of a pisser because we needed them, but they'd all been bought. Um, So the portal has made a massive difference. So before you were just, it was like on the telephone or on the email, Email. spreadsheet. This is what we're going to do. Do you want any? Fucking hell. Yeah. Um, And some retailers refuse to predict or can't predict what they will need in six months. So they won't pre-order. But when we put them online, they'll take them. So we're taking a level of risk away from them, if you like. So it's easier for them. Uh, that wouldn't have happened if Alex um, hadn't come on board. Um, so that's... And we've got a super strong team now. I think Alex has got maybe eight people um, working just over the road. Um, so I think we're good. You can relax. Well, we're good, but the future of us relies on hierarchy being good. Hierarchy. And it's a conversation I've had with, been having with him for over 10 years. Mm. What's your succession plan? What's your succession plan? What happens if you put your Harley Davidson under a bus? For instance. Which is all too real, yeah. Um, and Haraki's first attempt at succession planning when I said, what happens if you put your Harley under a bus, was, I will ride very carefully. Uh, I don't think you've got the point here, Haraki. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, to be fair, as a rider, and, and you know this... If you're going to do it and if you've got a passion for it, you almost can't think about that. No. Just, you know. But um, <laughs> I, I needed to put it in quite stark terms for him yeah. to understand oh, yeah. that, you know, something may happen yeah. to either one of us. Yeah. And if we don't have a succession plan, the business will falter. Yeah. And falter at best, fail at worst. Mm. Um, I've got, apart from me and Paula, we've got nine people whose livelihoods depend on... Me and Paula and Alex um, and our livelihoods over here depend on hierarchy having a business over there. Yeah. So <clears throat> at last he's got his head around it um, and he's doing some some stuff in Japan that will secure the future. He wants to be riding off into the sunset in a couple of years. Yes. But he has a plan that will mean that his business can... When he... 
In a couple of years, he wants a half ride into the sunset and concentrate on another on, on the production side of the business. So not concentrate so much on the retail part of the business. There's two separate companies in Japan. There's Works Inc. that makes the stuff, and there's Iron Heart Japan that sells the stuff. He wants to relinquish day-to-day responsibility for running the retail operation and concentrate on making shit mm-hmm. and concentrate on getting the factories to be able to make shit without Haraki and or Tom-san being on their backs all the time. So he's trying to get them into a position where they can produce stuff without being spoon-fed. Then, when he's done that, he can ride off into the sunset. So um, that's his plan. That's kind of reassuring to hear that because... Probably not a lot of people who love the brand think about if they're going to still be able to wear it in it's, a decade. Or it's been something that's worried me for at least ten years. Really, you know, when, when you when you have a look at the any collection, the spring, summer, the fall, winter, who designed that hierarchy? Me. No external input. No. Um, he. Uh, he really is everything from the uh, initial concert. And then he, ha- he hands some of the grunt work out to lesser mortals. <laughs> um, but even the lesser mortals who are brilliant at coming up with ideas don't. Wow. Wow. Uh, so here's another fascinating, I find it fascinating, story about the way the Japanese are. Tom-san, who is the person who does all of the interface, really, with the factories and the mills um, and does the grading of patterns and stuff like that. She's a one... She should be three or four people, but she's one. So she's super overworked. She's worked with Haraki for a long time. We were in Berlin. We were walking from somewhere to somewhere, me, Paula, Tom-san, Serena-san and Haraki... Tom was carrying a load of shit for hierarchy because he doesn't do that sort of thing because he's Japanese. He has somebody to do it for him. <laughs> in this case, it was Tom-san. And Paula was mincing across the field with nothing in her hands. Hierarchy takes off a jacket because it's too hot and hands it to Tom. Paula intervenes and said, let me take that for you. You've got too much. And Tom says, no, it's my job. Wow. And you have to you have to understand. Oh, here's another brilliant one. So I could go on forever. Yeah, but it is fascinating, Julie. We went down to Kojima to meet with some factories that make our stuff. And one of the factories took us out for dinner. And there was about ten of us, five from Haraki's side and five from the factory side. We were at two tables. On the factory side, there were four main people and a girl. And on our table, there were four players and Serena. And we were drinking bottle. For people new to the new to the podcast, it's Serena is Serena's the translator. Translator. She's also the daughter of a very good friend of Harakis who runs the uh, silt screening. Mm. company that does all the silk screening. Yeah. 
So she's worked there as well. And her husband now runs that factory. Anyway, she's been our translator for maybe 10 years. Fantastic. She lived in New York. She, she understands more about Western culture than just about anybody because she's lived in the West for a while. So she's, she's useful in that yeah. respect as well because she can, she can frame things to her arc and say, well, actually, this is what Giles really means. <laughs> um, so we were at dinner. We drunk them out of bottle beer. And Serena said, no, we drunk them out of draft beer. So we started to have to drink bottles. Right. Serena started pouring me a beer. I said, Serena, I can pour my own beer. She said, no, I'm the lowest one here. It is my job. No. And why isn't she doing it? She said, we just know. What? So unspoken hierarchy that Serena, Serena immediately knew that she was the, the lowest form of life oh my God. at that table. And it's, it's, it's really surreal. Wow. I, How do you know that, Serena? I just do. <laughs> Inherently. <laughs> fucking bottom of the pecking order. <laughs> bonkers. Oh, and the beers, the beers get served with both hands being held in extremely deferentially. Oh. I mean, you have to admire it. It reminds you of the story, that, you know, at the end of the World Cup when Japan left their dressing room utterly immaculate. <laughs> <laughs> Probably everyone else's towels yeah. and pants are everywhere. It's an amazing culture, one I would like to experience more. If, if someone was going to Japan, where would be their first place that you'd recommend? If someone was interested in that, eventually when they're able to, where would you say is would be their first stop? Um, if you're into Amakaji and stuff like that, I would stay in the Shibuya area. Shibuya? Yeah. So a lot of, you know, all the brands have got That's shops Mecca. there. And um, it's where the... I can't remember what the name of that crossroads is, the junction, the business oh, yeah. junction, the world, you know, the, yeah. just outside Shibuya Station, you know, every photo of Tokyo probably, every article about Tokyo probably has a, you know, that's the defining image yeah. of Tokyo. Yeah. Um, I love it there. Um, I haven't travelled enough. I love going down to Kojima. Mm-hmm. Um, Kojima's like Gosboys. <laughs> they are, they are <laughs> sort of nowhere, really. Gene um, Street is an embarrassment. Really? Yeah. Um, even Serena, who lives there, thinks it is. Um, but I love it because all of our factories are there. Right. So I can go and visit them. and I just love going to the factories and seeing how stuff's done. Are you going to be able to go out there again is, like, this year? Is it on the cards? Um, I have no idea. Um, Haraki said that as soon as he can travel, the first place he's going to come is here. Oh, he misses He misses us in here. Yeah. I think it'll. I think it'll be more difficult for us to go to Japan because they're doing so well, um, and why. I don't think anybody knows whether it's genetic or because they wear masks all the time or because they don't touch. I have no idea. I think they've had 7,000 deaths to our well over 100,000. God. Um, I think that if I said to Haraki, I want to come, he wouldn't be able to say don't because Mm -hmm. that's not what they do. Mm -hmm. But he would absolutely hate 
me going. Because if we were seen together, I think people would think, you know, what the hell? Right. You know, what's Haraki doing? Yeah. You know, with that, with the devil. You know, <laughs> he's coming from the UK, you know, mm. and I wouldn't want to put Haraki in that position. So I don't know when I'll be able to go and I will take advice from Haraki. You know, yeah. is it okay for me to come? Well, mm. will we be able to go and see people without them thinking that I'm going to give them the Kent version of the virus <laughs> or whatever? So I don't know when it'll be. Oh, God, it's, it's... But we've, we've been, we've taught Haraki how to do a Zoom. Oh, he's yeah. highly resistant, but actually loves them now. He does? Yeah, really loves them. Um, so I've probably, in inverted commas, seen more of him wow. in the last 12 months than previously. Wow. Just not in the same room. <laughs> I imagine it makes it all that sweeter when you eventually just clink beer glasses and actually you can just shoot the shit with someone. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. And that and just just and that relationship has spanned how many years now? Uh, I'm going to say sixteen. Sixteen years. Um, Jesus. I I sixteen would be guess. It could be fifteen. Mm-hmm. Our twentieth. I started working with Haraki about a year after he set Ironheart up, and the Ironheart twentieth anniversary is twenty twenty two. Wow. So, God willing and mm. virus willing, pandemic winning, mm. we will have the party to end all parties here oh. to celebrate that. Hell yeah. Bring all the Harleys, bring all the booze. <laughs> we, have, we have a lot of parties here, or we used to have a lot of parties mm. here at least once a year. And we'd have people from all over the world coming, customers, retailers, suppliers. And mm. it was the weekend to have fun. Mm. And we... Couldn't do it in 2020. I suspect it won't happen in 2021. Yeah. Um, but if it can happen in 2022, I think it'll be... Well, I don't know if Gosport's big enough for it. <laughs> There's a lot of people who have never come. We've had... Last time we had people who'd never left the States before. Their first trip ever outside the States was to come to Gosport. <laughs> To an Arnhart party. And, oh and that God. makes me feel really proud yeah. Yeah. that we have that. There's that connection that people will do that. It's, it, it, it's completely mad, but it, but it is what it is. It is mad. And, and actually, it brings me to that, to that term. Is it wabby-sabby? Is that the one? It's Depend, probably such depends. A there is a term, term wabby-sabby, but <laughs> I, I don't know I'm what one you're referring if anyone's, to. If anyone's listening and I've got this wrong, forgive me, but... But just the idea that, that 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 you keep repairing something, repair, 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 until perfection is in the imperfection. Exactly. Yeah. And and I, and I don't know if it's, but I know maybe again going back to that, maybe I'm a sentimental prick, but just you know I'll look at something that the experiences I've had in these jeans, like I won't be able to sell these. All the things that I like, I've been in Budapest in these. I was in Switzerland. You know, I, I've got like, you know, someone could say oh, I I was wearing these when my first child was born. There's something about the pieces that we buy here that. They retain so many memories and well, so much history. They, you know, it's... they tell a story. Yeah. Um, and when I originally started this business off, I was also uh, representing Flathead outside of Japan, not in America. Um, Kia had that. So I represented Flathead 
outside of Japan, excluding North America, <clears throat> as well as Ironheart. And Ironheart just became much, much easier to do business with than the Flathead for various reasons. But I wore a pair of um, 5100s. They were an anniversary gene of the Flatheads. And I posted a picture anonymously of them on Facebook. And an Ironheart customer got in touch with me and said, those are your jeans, aren't they, Giles? I said, what? He said, those are your fades. He could recognize a fucking pair of jeans by the way I faded them. (laughs) That's bonkers. So, you know, it sounds trite to say they tell a story, but, you know, they do. It's how your wallet sits, how you, which knee you lead with when you kneel on the ground, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I I would personally say that's probably worth travelling for, something that brings you that much joy. Yeah, um, you you don't want to get involved in every conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Just there's some fairly intense conversations going on. You've been listening to Ironcast, the official Ironheart International podcast. A big thank you to Tom Sitchell for editing support, and of course to the UK boss, Giles Padmore. Ironcast is an island-to-island production. I've been your host, Ollie Walker. We hope you enjoyed listening, and we look forward to dropping episode two very soon. Take care.